0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Serenity. And Serenity was married to a financially abusive coercive controller. It's a story of projection, gaslighting, shame, sexual coercion, physical abuse, and escaping for good. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Serenity. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for being here with us today, Serenity, and if you want to be a guest like Serenity is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Oi. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page, and there you can read all of our instructions. and Either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button, and please do send it in the format that we ask for. And a content warning for today's episode as we do discuss sexual coercion in this episode as well as physical abuse in this episode too. So a content warning there. And just a really big thank you to Serenity for, for being our guest today and sharing her story. So I'm now just going to get out of my way and your way. Serenity, the floor is now yours.
1: Okay, thank you, Brandon. Um, thank you for giving people like me a platform. Um, just as a, like a quick preface, uh, I had a 12 year relationship with my ex-husband and I would describe the things that I endured as nothing less than you know, emotional terrorism. And on more than one occasion, things escalated into physical violence. Um, My life with him could be distilled down to, you know, isolation, financial abuse, fidelity, intimidation, everything. Um, And then, of course, the fear and shame that is coupled with it. I think when you're with someone like him, you have been conditioned from childhood to abandon your own needs and to disregard your boundaries. And you've developed these like maladaptive survival mechanisms. And so this just kind of becomes the norm. And I think it's really easy for people like me to feel like what we've experienced is singular Um, and to ask ourselves questions like, was I the abuser? Am I a narcissist? Am I bad? Like projections that have all been levied against you. Um, but you know, I know that what really happened happened, and you know, if I've learned anything from stories told here, that my experience was not singular, and you know, despite any trauma that seems to be embedded at this cellular level, um, you know, we can heal from the abuse that happened. Uh, so I'm going to dig into the before my my childhood, my upbringing, just briefly. Um, before I met my ex-husband, I was very confident. I always had this really solid sense of self and like a strong moral compass. I sort of guided myself on, you know, going against the norm of where I was living. But I, I did have trouble at home. My father was undiagnosed bipolar. And he had a really terrible temper, which I think initiated a lifelong aversion to loud sounds and yelling. Um, he was often absent from the house and would spend most of his time at work. I mean, my mom had her own separate issues. Those began in her own childhood. Uh, later in life, I would come to see her at Emotionally immature, you know, she was always really preoccupied with their own needs. And she had a tendency to like enmesh with certain children and not be respectful of boundaries. Um, she was generally like defensive or reactive when you brought up things to her, um, you know, like too close or too distant and kind of expected her children to suit her. Um, there was this extreme aversion to discussing subjects that she deemed too uncomfortable, like death and bodies, um, or even like emotional death. Um, so, like as a result of this, I, you know, I probably never learned to self-soothe or even just like inhabit my own body and understand my own needs. So, I just learned to seek comfort outside instead. Um, My parents divorced when I was in middle school and my mom entered a party phase and eventually moved in with her abusive boyfriend. Um, I moved us, as in my brother and I and my mom, out of that house when I was 16 after he broke her nose. Um, so, you know, during this time, it, it was just like, you were completely dissociated, uh, and you developed these, you know, maladaptive behaviors. And I was like an insomniac all through high school. I couldn't sleep. Um, I, my body would have these anxiety episodes where I would like pass out and have convulsions. I think just from this Um, unprocessed stress. Um, So yeah, I vacillated between trying to help my mom and experiencing these intense feelings. You know, I didn't really have a lot of contact with my dad. It was sporadic and I would often go months without speaking to him. I, I have to say that my most significant positive influence at this time in my life was my older sister. I I just idolized her. She is 11 years older than me. Um, but she moved out of the house when I was pretty young because her and my mom had their own tumultuous relationship. After she left, I was just alone with all of these big people and big emotion. And um, looking back, I can I realized that I leaned on the attention of boys pretty heavily. I I think I sought their attention as this like type of self validation, and I didn't have any boundaries, so I struggled saying no, like even in uncomfortable situations, because I was like terrified of criticism and abandonment and this rejection, and I had no idea how to articulate my own needs and. I started dating an older boy as a freshman, and um, my sophomore year of college, I um, I got pregnant, and the father was my longtime on and off again high school boyfriend, but this time he was not interested in being a father. And I moved home and had the baby, and uh, dropped out of college and decided to support him and I by myself.
0: So after this happens, how are you feeling about yourself and what kind of future do you see for yourself?
1: As far as I saw myself, I was miserable. Everything seemed so bleak. Um, The world is a really unforgiving place for a young single mom, especially one who lives in a more rural place in America. Um, The judgment was so visceral. And I had moved home and dropped out of college, which was in itself a really hard thing to do because I've always really valued education. And Even though I was at home and I was working with my my baby, my plan was to move across the country to live with my sister and finish college and go and get away from this place where I felt tremendous judgment and was essentially isolated. And um, that plan was interrupted by meeting my ex-husband.
0: And this ex-husband is who your story is about. So I guess give us a good 3D picture of who he is.
1: Okay. Um, well, my ex is an interesting guy. His mom passed away when he was young and His father was abusive to him physically, mentally. His family grew up extremely impoverished. And later I would, you know, come to see firsthand the strained relationship between my ex and his dad. He was passed around to various relatives when his mom was sick. And I don't think he developed any secure attachment to adults. He instead like enmeshes with people. And create this like almost codependent relationship. Um, he started working at a young age and developed this really strong work ethic to survive. He's incredibly smart and talented in many many ways. He's super charismatic. He started a company that was extremely successful, and this success coupled with the trauma of his childhood, I think, ended up beating. His grandiosity, as, as long as I knew him, he fixated on what was done to him as a child. And he developed this really extreme sense of entitlement when it came to, like, justice. Um, he would often repeat these stories from childhood ad nauseum. I think I've heard the same stories from his childhood or teachers, I mean, a thousand times,
0: so I'm just going to interject here for a second so I can kind of frame it to myself for who I think he is. And in my mind, he's this person who came from nothing. And this is what he's kind of telling himself, that he came from nothing and that he overcame it and that he was going to show it to the world and that he really sees himself as kind of like a man of the people. And like he's, he's not an immigrant but he's still thinking to himself that he is the American dream. He came from nothing and made something of himself, and now he's going to show everyone that that's who he is.
1: Yes, absolutely correct. Um, and and to that point, he had this attitude that no one could have it worse than him, and therefore no one was smarter than him, no one was stronger than him. He, like, if you had told him a story about your childhood, he simply would not believe you. And this like otherness and this attachment to being unique is like a true core tenet of this guy's uh, identity. And he'll present himself in these like outlandish outfits and he drives expensive vehicles and will say purposefully like provocative things to garner attention. and. He, this sounds like hyperbolic, but he peddles himself as this neo-philosopher. And he is often said, like in all seriousness, that he is working on starting a religion or is going to solve like the meaning of life. And I, I truly think he believes that he has the capacity to answer that. Like when you're in a relationship with this type of individual, there is, Literally no space for nuance, for like ambiguity or your own opinions, even. So like his word is not only final, but in his mind, it carries like universal truth because he started from one place and he's gotten himself to this place. So everything that happened, like in between, gave him the tools to become this like all-knowing individual.
0: So now that we have a good 3D picture of who he is, how did you two meet?
1: Well, it's kind of strange in retrospect, uh, but my ex and I were introduced when my son was four months old, and I had recently turned 20. He was 33, 34. I was taken out to his place of work with a group of friends. It was a friend of mine and a colleague that she was dating. She was my age and uh, the colleague was closer to my ex-husband's age. And I was essentially shown off to see if he would be interested. I am now the age that he was when he met me. And on no planet or in any universe would I ever imagine getting in a relationship with someone who had just turned 20, who was clearly in this extremely vulnerable state is like this innately predatory behavior. I was in such a low spot. Uh, My son's father, who I had a really close relationship to for many years, abandoned us, rejected us. And I just wanted to be chosen by somebody. And here was this guy who was, you know, he like looked younger. I mean, he wasn't like, you know, in his forties or fifties. He was super successful and fit, you know, tall and handsome. And for like all intents and purposes, looked like this total package. And I thought, wow, like this guy is interested in me. Uh, I, I, I was just, yeah, like I was, so excited. I I couldn't like wait to go on a date with this guy. I felt like someone had given me the, um, like what I had been craving most, which was like acceptance and feeling like I was good enough.
0: So what happens after your first meeting? How do things uh, progress from here?
1: Things progress at this dizzying pace. You would say things like, like uh, I had unlocked his cage and, you know, I made him feel like no one else did. And he and this was like so key to me moving forward with him is that he instantly wanted to become a father figure to my son. And that was a void I was seeking to fill on a very deep level because more than anything, I wanted someone to love him maybe even more than I wanted someone to love me. And, you know, he gave me a brand new truck to drive. And I remember I told him I always wanted to go to Paris and then plane tickets, you know, magically appeared. And he wanted me to stay home and take care of my son and not work, which of course, in retrospect, red flags, um, it... He was definitely coming from a place of control on that end rather than like any place of genuine care or nurturing for me or my son.
0: So he's coming in here with this love bombing, and part of that love bombing is the beginning of financial abuse, which you don't see that yet. You know, you're being taken care of, and that sounds like love, but in this situation, what he's doing is he's taking away your autonomy without you even realizing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, rather than seeing it for what it was, I saw this person as like this savior, this like hero to my son and myself. And I abandoned every need to like, t- try to take care of this guy. Every like, off the wall thing, or like instance of emotional instability, or strange ways of connecting to the world. You know, everyone seemed to love him. And so I was like, you know what, you know, there are some things that feel a little off, but I like, I want to, I want to meet this person where he's at. So I'm going to abandon my goals. I'm not going to finish school. I'm going to hang out with this guy. I'm going to stay in town. I'm not going to move across the country. I'm going to do everything he needs me to do. I'm going to cook. I'm going to clean. I'm going to become this like perfect housewife for him to show him that like, I can do it. I can meet all of his needs.
0: So from here, how did everything progress or devolve after the initial uh, love bombing was done?
1: So he would often pontificate about how I needed his guidance and that any relation or like any conflict in our relationship was due to my own shortcoming. And this was internalized really quickly because I had no sense of self at this point. I was destroyed by um, what had happened with me and my son. And so I was willing to take his word at face value and he would tell me things like, you know, I didn't know how to love anybody yet or, you know, that my mom and dad had done this irreparable damage to me. And I would see all of these themes like he would have these mood swings. He would... Like Stonewall and all of these things really triggered my own sense of like abandonment and rejection. So I would just try harder. I would like self abandon harder to try and become the person that he wanted me to become. And so, like, the this emotional crazy making and like the isolation really began just a few months into our relationship. And I kept thinking to myself, well, he's right. Like I did have dysfunction growing up, but I was like bearing the brunt of all of the emotional labor regarding like the increasing problems in our relationship. And you would have these explosive anger episodes You'd get really tense and He would, you know, make these statements like, I'm the strongest person you'll ever meet. Or he would often say like, I'm not changing, which is, you know, I feel for whatever reason, it's like, at that point in my life, when I heard him say, I'm not changing, rather than taking it for what it was, he was telling the truth. He would not change. He never did change. Uh, I just decided to try harder. To that end, the things that he praised me for in the beginning were now becoming sources of criticism, and I I learned early on that the um, one of his tactics would be to inflict emotional damage, and it's hard to talk about, but he would inflict emotional damage and then coerced me into um, physical intimacy. And it was almost like he was like turned on or experienced some sort of like sexual gratification by seeing my emotional responses to like an outburst or conflict. He would like to see me cry And the sad thing is is I learned that, you know, being physical seemed to like kind of reset things for him. So like I would just acquiesce. I would, I would give in. And, you know, despite being withdrawn and still feeling so terrible from things that he had said or done, um, it was a really, really confusing dynamic. So he would he would say things to hurt me. And it would generally be something to the effect, like, um, I was flawed or damaged, or you would say things like, you don't know how to love. And this would make me feel so defective inside. And of course, like my emotional response would be to cry or feel bad. I would say, I would like cry and be like, I'm sorry. I I'm sorry that I can't be good enough. and. He would see that and that would trigger a response in him. And he would come up and like force me into this embrace, which then like triggered, he would be become aroused. And even though like, I'm still trying, I am like not in any space to engage with this person physically. It almost always ended up in us engaging in like intimate state at this point, I, I can see that there is something really flawed, not only about our relationship, um, but him as a person, like this doesn't feel right. feels gross. I, I don't want it. Um, but I also know that being physical reset, like reset his whole, his clock, if you will. And I think to myself, I, I can't move on because this guy is attached to my son. Like my son is attached to him. He's calling him dad. And not only that, but around 10 months, nine months into our relationship, I got pregnant with my second son, with, with his biological child. And that I was, I was stuck. I was with him for good.
0: So what happens while you're pregnant and then after you do have the child?
1: I mean, while I was pregnant, he has always been someone who was really critical and judgmental of folks who carried extra weight. And so I developed this complex surrounding my weight. I felt like all of this pressure to not gain weight and to do things his way and to stay like appealing to him. Um, but the problems really set in after I gave birth. And that is when so before then he had this sort of, I know what's right. I'm older, I'm stronger. I'm more successful. I'm going to coach you into the person that you need to be to meet my needs. But after I gave birth to my second son is when his cruelty set in. After I gave birth, I was always doing something wrong or being too fussy over the kids, which he would constantly say would make them like spoiled or soft. I remember one day he came home and through this like wet load of laundry, onto like the counter in our laundry room because I hadn't gotten around to washing his load of clothes fast enough. I mean, I had like a newborn and a toddler at home and he would say things like, you're the laziest person I've ever met. So on top of like being postpartum and having two kids under two, I was now trying to meet like these impossible demands of my boyfriend, and I was like my head was completely underwater. I wasn't even treading water at that point. like I was drowning. and in hindsight, like I know nothing that I can do would ever be good enough. But at the time, I still had this mindset of like try harder, you know, forgive him harder, forget things, forget things he said, um, just do things that need to be done. and he like up until the end of our relationship would always claim that I was, you know, going to ruin our kids, and he would threaten to take them away from me. And he would say things like he always wanted more kids, but I was too crazy to have more kids with, or he said, you know, he wanted more kids, but he couldn't risk having a daughter because I would be a bad mom to a daughter. And He would wound me so terribly that I would retreat and I would feel so disconnected from everything. But then he would like act like nothing was wrong. And so I'm thinking, well, there is something wrong with me then because he's clearly an inherently happier person because he can just move on from these terrible things and I'm still feeling miserable. And you begin to like internalize and self gaslight so quickly in these situations.
0: So here you are at the two year mark or just under the two year mark. All of these negative things are being told to you about yourself. You're trying to raise two children. Everything is overwhelming. There's a lot of gaslighting that is going on from his end. So are you believing the lies that you are told? Are you seeing through what he is doing? Like, where is your, I guess, mental stability at this point?
1: Yeah, at this point, I still like held a shred of um, not only like sanity, but an awareness that things were not as he said they were. So like, for example, he became really, really fixated on my birth control. I had a hormonal IUD planted and he became obsessed with this, this IUD and would say things like it was making me crazy. And I, I I would just constantly get second guess myself like, okay, well, I know that it can't be that bad because I have these great kids and I I'm still like, have, you know, maintaining some relationships on the outside at this point, um, but I I get like a, another type of IUD to appease him, and and this is like looking back, I this is how I kind of know that I knew things were not as he said they were. So, um, and this is maybe like going into too much uh, anatomy or you know like gynecology or whatever, but. Um, and an IUD, there are like strings, right. When they're implanted. And he would always say like the strings of my IUD are like hurting him during, like when we're intimate, like, and I don't know if it's because he wanted me to take it out. So I could like have another baby. I have no idea he would fixate on like my IUD and the strings and all this stuff. And so I told him, I was like, I will make an appointment to go get the strings of my IUD cut. Um, and I did this as an experiment to like check my own sanity (laughs) and I never made that appointment. I told him, I'm like, I got the strings cut. And after that, he was like, oh, I can't feel them. This is great. And so you're like, well, you never could feel them to begin with. And so by, at that point, it was still like, I understood what he was doing and I was trying things to keep myself sane.
0: And what were the emotional effects while trying to keep yourself sane while dealing with all this crazy making that's going on?
1: Um, Oh, it's like a downward spiral. So quickly, you, you realize that, uh, you're stuck and I at that time was experiencing intense anxiety I remember waking up in the middle of the night with like these panic attacks. Um, you just become like this shell of a person because you're constantly walking on eggshells and you're, you're starting to second guess all of your perception. And around this time, like that gets exacerbated because he begins, cheating on me with his secretary from work sometime before our second son's first birthday so he's still a baby and I remember becoming aware of her after seeing her at his office and of course my brain at this point is like on hypervigilant and I noticed I'm like this seems really off but He would constantly say, like, there's nothing going on. And I'm 22 at this point, and she's younger than me. And so you just, like, experience this strange dichotomy of, like, self-loathing. But you're also, like, I'm going to try harder to keep this person in my life. I'm clearly miserable, but I'm just going to, like, try harder, and that will keep him around. Because when this other person comes into the picture that really, really triggers my rejection, like this core wound of mine, which is rejection and abandonment. And I'm thinking I've got to do everything I can to keep this guy around and away from this other person. And so not only did I feel rejected and sort of almost accepted that as a challenge to keep him around. But I also had a family with this guy and I was financially beholden to him. I had no income. I was solely reliant on him giving me cash. Um, We were engaged, but not married. We had no joint account, which sidebar, we never would have any joint account even after marriage. Um, And One of the things that I wanted to do at this point, because I knew I was losing him, I thought, okay, we've got to get out of this town. We've got to get it like start fresh, restart. And so we agreed to move like a town, maybe like an hour and a half away. And this did not have the effect that I was hoping it would have, which is obvious because it acted at like, as like this de facto repository for me and my kids. Like, I'm sure he agreed to this so he could have more time with the woman he was cheating on me with. And I was so bogged down and mired down in this mode of trying to save our family and our relationship that I was so myopic. I could not be the forest through the trees at this point. And, you know, like during this time I was living downriver. I had no money. And every time what I did have was a credit card on Amazon. So I could order things off there, but that was it. And so one time I was driving back to our old town uh, to attend a, a friend's funeral. And I did not have enough money to pay for gas. So I went as far as I could. I pulled into a gas station and I asked the attendant because in this place I live, people pump gas for you. And I asked the attendant if there was any way I could call my fiance and input his credit card information into the gas kiosk. And he was like, no, you can't. That's not how these things work. And a gentleman came up to me and offered to fill up my tank. And it was so embarrassing. And it was so shameful because here is my fiance who's worth a lot of money. And I literally had to beg for gas with my two kids in the car to drive to a funeral. And even then I was like, I was desperate for my kids to grow up with a family because like I didn't have that growing up. And so like I was always trying to get back to this like state of where our relationship began. You know, like when I brought up his cheating, he would tell me that I was crazy. He would become irate. And so I had moved back to the town we were living in previously. I moved in with my mom and with my two kids because we, we as in my ex and I, no longer had a house together. We sold that. And I i didn't realize it at this point, but I had been discarded. So all of this strange behavior moving forward throughout that summer, like him just coming to visit the kids or him not having a conversation with me, like, hey, let's go look at houses. We're living back here now. We should probably... a place where we can all live together. That never happened because he was done. He did not want this family anymore. He did not want me anymore. My sons and I had been discarded by this guy. And I was truly living with my head in the sand. I was completely oblivious to the fact that he was truly done. Like there was nothing I could have said or done that would have made him come back to be the family with me. And I went over to where he was staying, which was his mistress's parents' house. And I just had this conversation with him. I said, Look, I am going back to school. I am moving with our two kids across the state so I can go back to school. And this is when things turned physically violent for the first time. He, um, this is like hard to talk about, but he grabbed me and he choked me up against a chain link fence outside of this house he was staying at. And I called the cops. He was booked into jail and was bailed out the next morning. And this is when I really saw like the mask was off with this guy. I saw how intimidating he could be that he was capable of physical violence. And I mean, I remember not long after this, he had finally purchased a house to move into. I did not ever, I did not move into that house because I was moving across the state with my kids, And I had like had his phone because at that point, He still would not admit cheating on me. And I took it into a bathroom and was like looking through text, which confirmed everything. I'm not crazy. He discarded me. He cheated on me. He has this whole relationship with another person. And he punched his hand through the door, ripped the door off the hinges, pulled me out of the bathroom and basically like wrestled the phone out of my hands and like me to the ground. And I just like sat there and cried. And that was like enough. I had to get out of there. I had to get away from the person. And so I did. I packed up a U-Haul and I moved my kids across the state and I re-enrolled in in school and I started school again.
0: So eventually he does come back and tries to hoover you back into a relationship. But before that, the time that you're in right now, before that actually happens, what is your life like during that time?
1: Well, I was living in this mold-infested townhouse with my two kids, and he was only paying me child support for our biological child. So I was truly still financially beholden to this guy, I had student loans that I was taking out, but it was never enough. And in hindsight, I really think he was making it so hard for me to survive. I had no choice but to come back to him. And, and at that point too, it's like when you have kids together and it's so hard to just leave this person and to have no contact, His mistress had left him after she learned the extent of his lies to her. So he did not have that source of supply anymore. And, you know, like you just are still in such a vulnerable spot because once again, I am the lowest I've ever been. Kind of just like when he met me (laughs) and I'm feeling rejected and I am just wanting a place of comfort and security and someone to accept me again. And about 10 months after being broken up and living in, in this university town, I was really hoovered back up into this relationship with him after a relentless pursuit. You know, I felt so devalued and I just wanted to be the one he picked rather than the girl he cheated on me with. And like I said, the financial abuse was such a dark cloud. I mean, I was truly trapped. He would say things like, he wants me to like stay home and like take care of me. He wants to have another baby. And I'm thinking like, didn't you just tell me that would be a bad mom to a daughter? And it was like being thrown off a cliff by, by a person. Someone throws you off a cliff, but somehow they make it to the bottom to catch you. And he does that over and over and over. He throws you off a cliff and then somehow makes it to the bottom to catch you. And rather than see the person shoving you off a cliff, you just see the person who's catching you. You just see him catching you. And it's like that every time.
0: And did he ever apologize for anything before you get back into the relationship with him?
1: No, he never admitted to physically hurting me. He never admitted to cheating on me throughout our whole our whole relationship, he never admitted to physically hurting me or cheating on me. And when we moved back in with him, we, my kids, and I, I really let a lot more things slide than before we had broken up. I think before we had broken up, I might have demanded an apology. But when we got back together, I just thought, you know what? The past is in the past. I'm going to forgive even harder this time. And that is when his grip like really tightened around me. He was so incredibly demanding of my time. He would constantly call or text. He would follow me around the house. And I literally had no time to myself. He would like try to start dressing me like he didn't pressure me and to start behaving and thinking uh, like himself, or ways that he approved of. Like I had no credit cards, we had no joint bank accounts. I did not have access to any household bills. Um, he told me when I moved back in, I had to cut off all relationships with male friends, and I stopped doing things that I enjoyed. And this is when the self-abandonment becomes complete. Like this is when. I really hit the end of the road when it comes to being an individual. And it's a really strange experience to have every bit of individualism like chipped away at, like he allowed no space to, um, individuate from him. I had no agency and to survive, I had to, align with him completely. Like I was his prisoner and I felt this massive sense of shame for going back to him. And I tried really hard to project this like image of, oh, it's a happy family and here they are. They like, they rekindle, things are great. The family's back together. Everyone everyone must be so happy. Um, But like this, refusal on his end to acknowledge any deceit or violence, it really leads you into this deep state of paranoia and distrust both of him and of myself. And you just internalize it so deeply and so quickly. It's almost like not only have you abandoned yourself, but there's no reflection of you at all, period, in like your home where this is supposed to be like a place of, calm and enjoyment for your like family, but you know, like looking back, even on holidays, they're like riddled with almost like little post-it notes because he would always ruin an event like beforehand, just to make sure that like, I couldn't enjoy myself. And it is such a strange experience. Every bit of self and individualism, like literally chipped away at There was no space to individuate from this guy, like no agency. So by this point, like the self-abandonment was complete, you know, looking back, this guy like puts me through hell that he pretended I was responsible for and then played the hero like every time because he would swoop back in and, you know, be a dad for like a minute to my kids. And so I just was working under this assumption that as long as I forgave harder or forgot harder or tried harder, it, it would work. And I would finally get the relationship that I had always wanted. Um, and, you know, as naive as it sounds, like I, I truly thought that that would happen someday.
0: So you're back with him for a long period of time. You get married, you know, these cycles of dysfunction continued for a while, but what are the bigger things that are happening uh, within this dysfunction, within this abuse before the relationship ends?
1: Yeah. So he and I were together for a couple of years. We got married and, you know, one of the, the bigger ways that like he engaged in this, like, relationship was with me was to always pick away at the things that I valued. And, you know, he would often say things like the kids acted better for him implying that my mothering was defective. And he would always like make jokes to cover and talk about how dumb I was. So like, by this point, there was truly nothing left in me. But I was still like cognizant of how he was treating me. Like I, there was still something in me that was like wanting to push back, but this would always, always make it worse. So when I initiated conversations or confronted him about what was going on, there was this constant refrain of like me being the aggressor. I just wanted to fight. Like, why can't I just like let things go? And so all I wanted was just to be met with like this genuine good faith just to be told, like, I'm sorry, or to acknowledge what was happening. And also at this point, like he was physically violent with me again. Um, I am Michelle. It is chaos. It is constant stress. The cycles are, of course, like, like the typical tension or like incident tension. I don't know what the cycles are, but I would try and stretch out that last bit, which is like the calm, right? Like, sounds so silly now, but like my rationalization was that like clearly there was something missing in me. Like there must be some disconnect on my end. So like to numb this disconnect, I I would just appease and I would do everything I could to suppress my own needs and cater to him constantly. I, you know, I think we're all like familiar with this phrase, like, um, if you tell yourself a lie enough times, it becomes indistinguishable from the truth, like it becomes truth. So like during these calm phases, during these appeasement phases, things didn't actually get better. He never changed. I was like, I was just able to sustain suppressing my own needs for longer periods of time before my reserves got depleted. So it would be like tension and incident. And then in our own like weird dysfunction, there would be some sort of reconciliation, but there was no reconciliation. It was just pretending it never happened. And then I would try to stretch out that period of calm for as long as I could before I knew something else was going to happen. Like when he would be physically violent or there would be like intimidation or, um, you know, more emotional abuse. So you would just try to stretch that out as long as you could. But I didn't know that you can't stretch that out forever. Like at some point you become exhausted and at some point you have to, there, there's an end point when it comes to that. So like, because of this, because that I was so thoroughly convinced that there was something wrong with me Um, because why else would he keep hurting me? Why else would he, you know, be physical with me? I self-diagnosed myself with a personality disorder. Um, I do not have one, but when someone tells you that over and over again, that there's something wrong with you and I'm the type of person who will try and analyze and fit things into a box to try and make sense of them. I, I just started self-gaslighting in response because clearly he's, he's right. Like, clearly he's okay. He seems fine. You know, he gets mad and he explodes and he stonewalls and he does all this stuff. And he like elicits this emotional response from me. And I am so, the emotional response that he elicited from me like, they felt so out of character for, for me, for myself. I thought, yeah, there, there is something wrong with me. I, I have a personality disorder. Around this time, I um, started self-harming. Sorry, I have to pause. There.
0: Take your time. Thanks. <laughs> okay.
1: Okay. All right.
0: We don't have to talk about Ar- it.
1: Um, I think it's like kind of a linchpin. You know what I mean? Like, I think, I think it's important. Okay. Um, around this time, I started self-harming to try and, like, mask this extreme pain of feeling, like, eternally defective. Um, like during this time, you know, during the like I have a personality the Twitter sort of phase, I had like suicidal ideation. And like the embarrassment that I still feel like regarding how I reacted is still like so prevalent. You know, it was clearly clearly the lowest point in my life. and my executive decision-making like was not online. I was living with chronic stress and chaos. And I know like my impulsive reaction, his abuse. And they were just so out of line with my character. And so it's so hard to go easy on yourself and and say like, yeah, like, like I was just truly just trying to survive like that time.
0: So eventually you're working. And then once again, he convinces you to quit your job and financial abuse kind of begins again right here. So what happens after that toward the point where you eventually do end up leaving this relationship?
1: Um, this cycle is painful as it was. Like, it persisted for years, Um, you know, but despite that, like I had a few things that sort of kept me afloat. I finished school. I started working. I ended up with this job and education that I really loved. And it was the first time that I brought home income myself in like almost a decade. And I had amazing colleagues and was making connections in the community and was starting to like develop this, this friendship outside of him because I had, I had no friends, but there's nothing left. And he, after about a year and a half of that, made me quit because he said my job was taking time away from the kids and ruining them, in particular, our younger son. And he gave me an ultimatum. He said, either you put your job or I quit mine. And like the disparity of the incomes is like laughable, right? Like I'm making $40,000 a year. He makes millions. And so I just, I, I begged him like just to please let me keep this job but he was intransigent. So I lied to my administration at work and I told her the line that, you know, that he had fed me, which was our younger son was experiencing anxiety and he had to go to a small private school. And I I lost my lifeline to the outside world and he did it on purpose. He knew exactly what he was doing. And it was around this time that I found out he was cheating on me again. Um, He had this relationship in secret with another woman. And when I found out, he destroyed his phone with a shovel. Like he brought his phone out and like literally just smashed it with a shovel in front of me. And then he like took his computer and smashed it with a hammer. And like this all coincided with, with the pandemic. So we, for whatever reason, like decided we're going to move. And, you know, we did move after that, but that was truly the beginning of the end for me. That was like my waking up period because he, for whatever reason, when he made me quit my teaching job. Um, and I think it's because it's like when a prisoner escapes, right? Like They escape prison and they get a taste of like, what it's like to have a genuine connection with people. And, and then it, that's like, that's taken away. And you're like, but wait, like people do like me. Like people like, don't hate me. Like they say, like they do. And I, I think that that job and getting out there and realizing that there's a world beyond like the confines of like the prison that he created for me exists. By this time, like I, we moved to a new town and I really could only describe my, my brain state as like fried. I was, I was done. And, you know, like there were things where I would say, I finally messed with the courage to be like, Hey, can I take control of some of the finances? I would love to pay a bill and I would love to be treated like an equal. And in this like signature philosophical good, he said that I am lucky to raise his kids and I needed to be content with that. And you know, I, I had had enough. So like by then I, I had unknowingly become what a lot of people call a gray rock. Like I pulled away. I didn't celebrate our anniversary. I stopped tending to his name. I stopped, like, letting his, um, his emotional responses trigger me into this state of, like, panic and fright, and I believe that Gray Rock period probably saved me from persisting as this supply to him. Uh, we had gone on vacation, and it was a disaster. He told me he was going to take my kids away, and... I just, I was like, you know what? We can be done. So we separated not long after that. And I I finally entered therapy because he was paying me child support. And for the first time I had money to spend how I wanted to spend it. And I was like, I'm going to spend it on therapy. So for the first time, I finally understood the extent of the abuse that I had suffered. And I remember describing like what my normal was, normal and like big, heavy quotation. And I remember seeing like my therapist like wide eyes. And that response changed my life. Because that was my normal. Like I had no idea. Like, I was 20 when I met him. He was the longest relationship like I had ever had. And so I just, I learned that there was nothing wrong with me. And that was such a freeing state of being. Like I learned that like my hypersensitivity and my like hypervigilance, like these are all responses to abuse. And like my defensiveness was literally just that, like it was response a threat, like he was a threat. And after we separated, we started couples therapy as a way to like mitigate the fallout for our kids. For whatever reason, he agreed. Our couples therapist became worried enough for my emotional and physical being that he actually contacted my individual therapist. Um I don't think that is common for like therapists to like reach out that way. Um, But I remember thinking like, oh, like this is, this was bad. (laughs) Like knowing now what I know about narcissistic projection uh, in one of those couples therapy sessions, he was telling this really long story about how he thought that me and our friends that we were on a boat with wanted to kill him. And like I said about like narcissistic projection, like that that instance never happened. But knowing now what I know, like it's truly scary. Like I, I truly feel that this person would have really hurt me if I had stayed. We got a divorce. I told him I couldn't be his wife. You know, I... Decided to keep lawyers out of it because I was, again, I had no money. I was financially beholden to this guy. And I knew that if I did, he would make my life hell. Um, so I just tried to make it as amicable as possible. And um, we, 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 we divorced and things were going okay until I got a partner until I started dating again. And that is when the post separation abuse really started. Because before then, I think he had changed his tactics to try and manipulate me. Things were actually better than ever. When we were separated, he was like, Understanding and I'll go to couples therapy and like Mr. knife. And in retrospect, I realized that this was manipulation to probably try and hang on to me as long as he could. When he realized that I had truly moved on, he immediately started stonewalling me. He blocked my telephone number. He would say things like he had to view me from the outside because. Viewing me from the inside, he knew like the kind of person that I was and how terrible I was. Everything was on, on his own time. And like he really threw our kids' well being under the bus because he just refused to co parent. And there were times where he would threaten to close his bank account and threaten to throw like coffee in my face. And he, he actually, out of like rage, told our oldest son that is legally adopted by him that he wasn't his biological father like that was the first time our son had ever heard of that and I I realized that it is not safe but possible for me to co-parent with this person and narcissistic relationships they often talk about parallel parenting and that is when I realized I had to give up this dream of having this lovely family, post-divorce, where everyone just gets along. And he was absolutely future-faking when we first got a divorce. He was pretending to be something that he was not. And once again, his mask came off when I started dating. And he realized that there never was going to be an amicable split. Like, I could not... I, you can't co-parent with someone who will use kids and their well-being as a weapon against you. You know, throughout a relationship, you would constantly say things like, you don't even know me, you'll never know me. And that gave him like carte blanche to run roughshod all over me and my perceptions of events and reality. You know, in retrospect, that was probably his biggest projection. Like, I don't think I will ever know this person. I don't think I will ever know the like, extent of his lies or will remain like an enigma to me forever. And I have to be okay with that because he's not safe for me to be around.
0: So with everything that's happened in the aftermath, people have the healing process and is not always a linear process. So for you, how has your process been going?
1: Well, it's not a straightforward one. Um, not linear and some days, you know, better than others. I struggle with short term memory and, you know, like inhabiting my body when I'm feeling, um, you know, emotions like sadness or anger. I just want to like leave in my, like my brain spaceship dissociate, get, get out of here. Um, I, you know, still struggle with being highly reactive. Um, but like it's it, it's it is possible to like heal from these these people. I'm in therapy still, and have this vast support group surrounding me like i finally um yeah, I finally like muster the courage to to talk about this, and i I feel connected with like friends and family once again. My kids and I are in therapy together like I can. I can feel myself start to relax, like to let my guard down because like I did get out. Like I did, I did make it out.
0: And you did make it out and you're doing our show today. And I know you wanted to help so many people by being on the show. And I also know that you were very nervous coming into recording this episode as many people are, and now we're pretty much done. So for you, you know, going through the process of talking to me and doing the pre-call and, you know, getting everything organized to today and finishing, how does everything feel for you after just kind of letting everything out here today?
1: You know, this is like cliche to say, maybe a little trite, but it's liberating. Like it feels... um like self-validation after years and years and years of like lying to yourself, not lying to yourself, but like the self-gaslighting, right. And making excuses like for someone for so long, because the way that they were treating it was so, you felt such shame about it for like staying. And yeah, it really does feel so liberating.
0: Well, I just want to thank you for, being here with me today and being open in our pre call and all the notes and things that I had for you and incorporating everything into that today is because we really wanted to give a 3D picture of who you were dealing with and what you were experiencing and how you felt about everything. And you just did a really great job. And I can't thank you enough for being here with me, with us today, and validating everyone's experience because I know that's the one thing that you really wanted to do most to make people feel uh, less alone through your story. And you did that today. And I really can't thank you enough for being here.
1: Well, I I just want to reiterate, thank you so much for the work that you do for the platform that you provide survivors. Um, It is so invaluable uh, hearing other people's stories and getting that validation and without uh, your podcast, I, I think I probably still would have like kept this to myself. I would have probably realized that, you know, things, bad things happened and, um, I could just move on, but hearing everyone else's stories really is so inspiring. So thank you.
0: Well, Serenity, I really want to thank you so much once again, for being here And if you want to be a guest like Serenity was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you're someone that needs support, we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. It is a wonderful group of people on there so you can share your experience with all of them and make friends too. And if you just need support, join our group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And we have a new friend to the show, and it is a place called Shelter Movers. And Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. And it is a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well. It is currently only in Canada, but they are looking to move into the United States. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people that are getting out of domestic violence. They help you to safety and get all of your things out of your home and into storage, all of your belongings into storage, and they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization. So if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's story. So for myself and Serenity, we hope you have a good night.